that there was this continued lionization of uh, the Israeli public health approach to vaccines. So as a Palestinian, the whole conversation around COVID-19 access began to circulate. Lo and behold, sort of the model nation was an ethno state that was predicated on the erasure of my people. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Today, I am joined by our guest, Dr. Denya Cato, who is a pharmacist, epidemiologist, and health services researcher. Dr. Cato is an associate professor of epidemiology and health services research based in Baltimore, and also curated the summer 2020 issue of the Journal of Palestine Studies on the Pandemic in Palestine, and wrote the introduction called Public Health and the Promise of Palestine. And she is here today to discuss and revisit that essay with me. Danya, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for being here. As I told you when we were planning this, I've really appreciated this essay that you wrote for a long time And this episode is an opportunity for a very long overdue conversation about what happens when a pandemic intersects with and overlaps with structures of colonial occupation. Before we get into your essay called Public Health and the Promise of Palestine from 2020, can you tell listeners briefly about your background and research interests and sort of what brought you to uh, writing this essay? Sure. So I was born in Palestine and grew up in Chicago in a primarily Palestinian community. And in 1987, uh, my family moved to Palestine, moved back in an effort to sort of lay our roots down uh, back in Palestine. And that year, later that year in 1987, the first intifada began or the first uprising against the Israeli occupation began. And our education. My siblings and I, our uh, classes were canceled, school was canceled. Uh, The IDF or the Israeli army was throwing tear gas bombs into schools. And there were curfews on a daily, weekly basis, sometimes monthly basis. And so my parents made the very difficult decision to go back to the U.S. And fast forward a few decades later, and I uh, started my pharmacy degree, completed training in clinical pharmacy and got my PharmD from the University of Illinois, and then did my Master of Public Health in Humanitarian Aid and International Development and International Health, and spent many years working as a pharmacist before I went on to get my PhD um, in epidemiology and health services research. And all throughout this way, I sort of started to think about these broader public health questions, um, but didn't quite have the tools to think about them in a systematic way, and then began to engage with the literature. And after my PhD in 2015, I was based at Bidizet University as a Fulbright Scholar, Bidizet University in the West Bank at the Institute for Community and Public Health. 
And while I was there, I, um, I worked with the Palestinian National Institute of Public Health uh, and the World Health Organization on a few consulting projects. And that experience and the experience of engaging with other NGO workers in the West Bank and in Palestine more broadly really pushed me to think even more critically about how we talk about uh, structures and their impact on health. And, and that experience was really invaluable, both for me connecting personally um, with my homeland and my children connecting with their homeland, um, but also in thinking about these broader structures in a really granular way. Before we talk about the core argument in your piece from 2020, I think it would be good to pause for a moment on settler colonialism. This can sometimes be a kind of contested topic. And since we're going to talk about the pandemic in Palestine as a kind of object lesson on the ways that settler colonialism manifests in the arena of both health and public health, it would be great to just sort of have you speak on when you use that term in your work, what do you mean and sort of how do you conceptualize settler colonialism? Yeah, that's it's really important to start with that to sort of set the groundwork for the conversation. And I borrow my definition from this piece that came out about 10 years ago in Settler Colonial Studies. The piece is entitled Past is Present, Settler Colonialism in Palestine. And it's by Omar Jabari Salamanca, Mezna Cato, Karim Rabia and Subhi Samur. And it was a special issue of settler colonial studies um, that emerged out of a conference um, that was held in London. And this piece really signaled a shift in the conversation uh, around uh, framing uh, the situation in Palestine. And I'm going to read what they describe as settler colonialism and also just say a few words about why I think it's important to make some of these distinctions clear. So they write, from the earliest Palestinian accounts to the vast majority of contemporary research, the crimes committed against Palestinian society by the Zionist movement and the state it built have been well recorded. Zionism is an ideology and a political movement that subjects Palestine and Palestinians to structural and violent forms of dispossession, land appropriation, and erasure in the pursuit of a new Jewish state and society. As for other settler colonial movements, for Zionism, the control of land is a zero-sum contest fought against the indigenous population. The drive to control the maximum amount of land is at its center. The continued existence of Palestinians, therefore, poses severe problems for the completion of the Zionist project and consequently informs Israeli state policies against Palestinians inside Israel, in the occupied territories, and in exile, end quote. So I borrow this definition of settler colonialism, which is essentially uh, land expropriation, theft, and appropriation in service of an ethno-state predicated on the erasure of the native indigenous people. And in this case, those people are the Palestinians. And I think it's really important. And the shift that I'm talking about is this increased recognition that it wasn't just apartheid. That's the problem, right? If we're talking mm -hmm. about identifying, you know, using this root cause analysis, um, it's not just apartheid. Ap apartheid signifies separations of communities, segregation of communities. And that certainly is one of uh, the tools 
of the Israeli occupation and, and really is one of the centerpieces of the architecture of the occupation is apartheid vis-a-vis checkpoints, vis-a-vis uh, -vis illegal colonies within the West Bank that fragment um, and distance Palestinians from one another and makes mobility and ambulation within uh, the West Bank and within other parts of Palestine um, uncertain, uneasy, unsafe, often violent. And so these are all tools, right, that are used um, in service of a larger political project. And that project is the project of settler colonialism. And this is why you, you see this kind of um, duh moment, right? Duh moment when Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch came out with their reports around identifying Israel as an apartheid state. And, and Palestinians were like, thank you, welcome. Mm -hmm. Thank you for acknowledging the reality that we've long known. Um, but it's more than just an apartheid state. Again, apartheid is a tool that is organized vis-a-vis uh, -vis these different tools and state military processes. But these are tools that are used in service of this larger settler colonial goal of uh, land appropriation, land theft, land expansion, and uh, ultimately the elimination of the native. And this is a very rich conversation that's happening in settler colonial studies, and it's an important conversation. The reality on the ground points to this being the project. And even early Zionist writers and thinkers were very clear that the Zionist project was a project of colonialism and a project of colonization that had as its patrons the U.S. and uh, Britain. And so uh, this is a matter of historical record, but that we're now naming it as a framework and trying to frame it as um, and center it in this conversation in public health as a fundamental cause of health in Palestine. That's a shift that's that's been made in, I would say, the past 10, 15 years. And that's not to say the conversations were not happening afterwards, but these conversations are more public and um, are, are being had in, in academic, activist, and other circles in a more uh, rigorous way. One of the things that we wanted to talk about was, and this is something you touch on in, in your essay, which is sort of the pandemic overall in Palestine and how, yes, colonial occupation has shaped it, but that the pandemic isn't this kind of, you know, necessarily neat system of layering, right, where as you talk about colonial occupation is sort of framed as this, quote, ultimate uh, comorbid condition. And this is a kind of framework that you reject. And I wondered if we could start from the beginning and sort of talk about what were the first few months of the pandemic like in Palestine, since your piece is from summer 2020. Mm -hmm. And though this essay was written early on in the pandemic and published in 2020, it's still so relevant in part because it's a very sharp contextualization of just the general landscape of public health in Palestine. Um, so can you talk about how this essay sort of maps that early pandemic response onto existing political economic dynamics and sort of walk us through the basic argument that you make in the piece? Sure. So I think it's really interesting to point out that what brought me to writing this piece and, and guest editing the summer edition of the pandemic and Palestine precedes the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I, I presented at Brown University New Directions in Palestine Studies on this issue of displacement and health in Palestine. And in it, I was 
reflecting and ruminating on my experience working on a project for the Palestinian National Institute of Public Health, where we were trying to figure out what the factors were at the individual family and community level that appeared to put residents of the Jordan Valley, which is uh, an area that is primarily and predominantly under Israeli control in the West Bank, um, what are the factors that put that population at risk for adverse health outcomes related to malnutrition? And we used a series of um, metrics, anemia, obesity, stunting, all can be problematized in their own different ways, but that was the um, intention of the study. And you know, the data was collected before I uh, signed on to support the project uh, in terms of the analysis. And it got to the point where we were running sort of the multivariable regression model. And surprisingly, there were no factors associated, no, no um, contextual community level factors that were associated with the adverse health outcomes. And so this was surprising because one would think, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> one would think that exposure to uh, forced eviction, right, would impact your health. One would think that destruction of your home or exposure to a home demolition would impact your health. But here we, we had a regression model that was telling us that it was not statistically significant relationship. And I had to really reckon with that from both the sort of methodological standpoint, but also from the ethical standpoint. What would it mean to say that exposure to communal violence does not impact health outcomes? Mm -hmm. And that was really the spark, that study and thinking about how, how to sort of wrap it up very neatly for these international funders, right? How would we wrap up this, uh, this project? And I made a point in the discussion section to say, um, and this is after much discussion and thought, that the exposure to latent daily everyday violence means that the overall condition of Palestinians living in the West Bank, and in this particular case, in the Jordan Valley, a population that is perpetually at risk of being displaced, that it's so overriding that it's impossible to differentiate uh, statistically the experiences of those who in particular are exposed to um, home demolitions and those who are not, because there's a superseding overriding structure and that structure is settler colonialism. So I think that that context is helpful because that the energy of this piece and the energy of the special edition more broadly precedes the pandemic. And the pandemic just brought to light what thing, what aspects of our healthcare system uh, were troubled that we already knew about. Palestinians already were talking about. Um, we had already identified as roadblocks to realizing our health. And this was the opportunity to really talk about them in a more systematic way. Right, absolutely. And I I think one of the things that really sort of stuck out to me the first time I read this piece, um, which would have been, I guess, late summer 2020, was that, you know, this this point that you talked about in terms of like what the data says, right? We kind of privilege these modes of analysis, right, which we say are supposed to tell us the truth about a situation. Um, and this idea of this sort of regression analysis to prove the impacts of eviction or prove the impacts of, quote unquote, 
settler colonialism on health uh, in a way that like would be satisfactory, right, to these levels of uh, sort of data that we are we require at an international level that are tied up more into the sort of funding apparatuses and NGOs and charity industrial complex in the way that we pay for research, as you mentioned, um, but that this is a privileged analysis and that it often contradicts, I think, embodied experience and what people who actually live through these experiences feel about their own lives. And I think one of the things, too, that that's really important about your piece is that you talk about how in a sense, this is a this is a means of constructing a framework for Palestinian health that's always doomed. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. And just to um, make a clarification, when we talk about eviction here, we're actually talking about forced displacement. There's no legal apparatus that's underlying these evictions. Right. Um, so I want to make that clear. We're talking about forced displacement, home demolitions, and other forms of violence that are part and parcel of the architecture of Israeli settler colonialism and occupation. Um, so, you know, that bit, the, 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 the idea of perpetual despair and slow death and necropolitics, you know, I'm not a social scientist. I am a public health researcher, practitioner, and health provider. And I, I read that work in, in, in two ways. One is there is a reality. There is a reality of deteriorating health conditions among the Palestinian people. There is a reality of the decimation of the healthcare system in Palestine. There is also a reality of Palestinians living and insisting on living. And my problem with ways of speaking about Palestine and ways of speaking about the Palestinians. And in particular, this happens when we talk about Palestinians living in Gaza. We have this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy problem, right? Mm -hmm. So the UN report that said by 2020, Gaza will be unlivable. And we're in 2022. What does that mean to tell people who are living and surviving under a draconian economic blockade of nearly 15 years that's closed them off from access to the remainder of humanity? What does it mean to tell them that we anticipate as this external body politic, we anticipate that by 2020, the land you ambulate on is going to be unlivable? but that you're actually living there and you're, you're trying to make sense of life under these conditions of great violence. And a lot of that gap in understanding is filled by what I call in the piece Resilience Inc., right? Mm, mm-hmm. Palestinians are so resilient that Palestinians are able to overcome, you know, this draconian economic blockade that stipulates what can and cannot enter Gaza, that has prevented the uh, development of the healthcare system that has in fact decimated the healthcare system system time and time again, including targeting hospitals, ambulances, targeting healthcare workers. And and the issue with that is that it prevents the possibility of actively engaging to prevent that inevitability. And I reject a language that makes inevitable violence against my people. And I reject language that allows people to 
absolve themselves of responsibility in that trajectory towards destruction. And I think it's really instructive here to talk about the scientific American scandal. And I'm not sure you're aware of it, but a year ago, uh, around June 2nd, 2021, Scientific American published a opinion piece that was written by healthcare providers in the US across a, a spectrum of disciplines, a few of whom were Palestinian. And the piece was published while Israel was raining death on the Palestinian people in Gaza. And the piece was called, As Healthcare Workers, We Stand in Solidarity with Palestine. And in this piece, and it's still available on the web archive, they ask healthcare workers, health practitioners to demand their healthcare institutions uncouple themselves from the Israeli apartheid settler colonial project. And they make very clear demands of both healthcare workers and healthcare institutions in the US. Now, this is on June 2nd. Again, the title was As Healthcare Workers, We Stand in Solidarity with Palestine. A few days later, another piece came out. A new mental health crisis is raging in Gaza. Mm. This, is, this is an article by Yasser Abu Jami'at, who's a, a physician practicing in Gaza. And essentially, it's talking about the mental health situation in Gaza, which is, as you can imagine, quite profound. Yeah. So this was June 4th. On about June 10th or 11th, the original piece, the text, the entirety of the text was disappeared off the Scientific American website. And disclaimer, disclaimer was included. And in that disclaimer, essentially, the uh, editors say this article has been removed because it fell outside the scope of Scientific American. Not only that, and this is where I think it's super instructive. Not only that. The title was completely changed. So remember the original title, As Healthcare Workers, We Stand in Solidarity with Palestine. The new title was Healthcare Workers Call for Support of Palestinians. So, you know, I mean, just flip the passive switch up to 2000, why don't you? There you go. And just click that button on Word. Um, Yeah. And Clippy's like, are you trying to minimize something? <laughs> Let me help you. Are you trying to erase settler colonialism? Um, the, th- the thing that is instructive here is the erasure of the word Palestine. Yeah. But also, so importantly, removing the word solidarity. And what I think is so fascinating about this case study is that the mental health piece in Gaza remained, right? None of that was removed. So, so long as you're tabulating, calculating, cataloging the crimes that are committed against the Palestinian people and the health effects of these crimes, like deteriorating mental health, deteriorating physical health, as long as you're doing that, we're good. But once you get near making demands Once you get near this question of solidarity, then you're erased. And this happened in real time in front of people's eyes. And they saw this erasure happening. And it's not lost on anyone that there's a deliberate 
there's a deliberate reason why that solidarity was removed. And I think that's partly sort of what this individuated health model, these health metrics have sort of lent themselves to. This idea of cataloging, which is important, right, as a matter of record to catalog. It is a, a, important as a matter of history to catalog. Um, but it doesn't come with some active engagement. It doesn't come with demands. It doesn't come with uh, a political praxis. Once you inject political praxis into the matter, then it becomes dangerous. And this was, I think, the conversation you all had with Abby Curtis when you were talking about the social determinants of health. As long as you sever that particular social determinant of health, for example, housing, from the broader political determinants that decide who gets housing and who doesn't, then the NIH will fund you, right? right. They'll fund you. They'll throw millions of dollars at you, right? And, and they'll throw millions of dollars at Palestinian NGOs that do this work, right? But once you make a political demand or once you situate that social determinant within that broader fundamental cause, as it were, then that type of public health engagement, that type of public health framework is rejected. Um, and in fact, as I mentioned in the Scientific American case, it's erased. And what was quite sad about the Scientific American scenario is that this piece really circulated pretty widely. And as a Palestinian, it was really, it was really nice to see colleagues share this article, mm -hmm. uh, to talk about Palestine, and to actually start thinking about what does it mean for us as citizens of the Imperial Corps, as healthcare providers that work and benefit from the Imperial Corps? What does that mean to us that Palestinians are being wholesale killed? And that type of conversation has been very rare in public health and medical circles generally. And to, to have seen it for that very brief moment in time, and then the, the outrage at it being erased, um, that was really, it was nice. Um, for lack of a better word, it was really nice to see that. Well, I, I mean, I think you're pointing out a very, you know, important. I mean, there's a reason why this piece was attacked, right? I, I think the declaration of saying, you know, we're health professionals and we're in solidarity with Palestine versus this kind of corrective framework that they applied to try and make it seem passive and make it seem instead of a real... When you declare yourself in solidarity, that is the true call to action for others to do the same, not to call for solidarity, right? I think when we see this sort of language of, of oh, you know, we we want, we're just we're just trying to make sure that the headline's not so offensive, so we've toned it down, right, to to make sure that it it's you know more acceptable, quote unquote. But what's actually done in that moment is a, a really important process of translation where you take something very active where you position, um, you know, the state of Palestine as being a state, too, um, into a framework where you've removed the sort of right of statehood from the headline itself. And that's really powerful. And I think it's so 
you know, it can be so frustrating to see people play that off like it's a really simple or innocent or innocuous rhetorical shift, um, you know, towards sort of the greater civility of us all or some bullshit, like whatever, you know, the reason. And and I think, what, as you point out, these are such important um, moments because it's not just a simple rhetorical move. This is literally... A, a really important moment where eugenic lies and, you know, fake science that ascribes destiny to people based on sort of where they're born and who they are. This is really what holds it up and reproduces it. These kinds of things that we um, pretend are innocuous have tremendous power. They absolutely do. And, you know, there was a there, there's a bit in that Scientific American piece. I wanted to read it because what it does, it it says something very basic, but that is often ignored in these conversations about uh, Palestine. And I, I, I'm quoting here, in light of the illegal, immoral, and targeted attacks on healthcare workers and healthcare infrastructure, we call upon US healthcare systems and academic institutions, as well as our colleagues in healthcare, to unequivocally condemn Israel's longstanding oppression of the Palestinian people and the ongoing decimation of their healthcare system. This violence does not end with a ceasefire, so long as the devastating economic blockade of Gaza continues. We affirm that health is a universal human right, including for the Palestinian people, and that the time for silence has long passed. Silence from this point forward is complicity. And, end quote, what I really think is important here is this, um, this conversation that you sort of gesture to around this biological determinism related to uh, Palestinians in particular, that Palestinians are just destined and they're perpetually on this journey towards dying and death. And I think I, I've, I've really thought a lot about this exceptionalization of Palestine and two things. To, to caveat, one is pointing out specificities of the situation in Palestine and of the Palestinian people. That does not mean that we are making an exception of Palestine, right? Mm -hmm. There are, there are, are so important, right? There are unique political conditions by which Palestinians live. And I hope we can get to it a bit in our discussion. Um, the, the primary one, I think, is the fragmentation and de- territorialization of the Palestinian people, that unless you are there and you really understand, it's hard to even believe that it's real, the fragmentation. So that's one thing. And the other is this um, exceptionalization that forecloses possibilities of solidarity, right? That if you think that this particular condition of the Palestinian people or in Palestine is so insolvable, right? That it has no relationship to what's happening to us here. It has no relationship to broader imperial, colonial, uh, racial capitalist goals. Then you start seeing that the solutions are not connected and it makes it harder and harder to build solidarities. So when you understand, for example, that Israel per capita is the largest arms exporter in the world, and that it tests a lot of that technology, right? It, it actually markets itself as having battle-tested technologies, battle-tested against the Palestinian people. And 
the surveillance technologies that are advanced in Israel and then exported to the rest of the world, the containment strategies, the population containment strategies that are tested and actualized on Palestinian people. These are all technologies that whether we're experiencing them now, we may experience them in the future. And if you don't care about the Palestinian people because you know they're an other or they've been otherized to the extent that um, you can't begin to see yourself having solidarity with them, then at least then you can make these connections to your own lived experiences and the potential uh, of these experiences to happen in the near future to you, but that they're now happening to the Palestinians. And I think Jasper Puar says this thing about, you know, Palestine is not exceptional, but it's exemplary. It's yeah. exemplary of some of the ways in which um, society writ large is moving towards mechanisms of containment, population control, uh, surveillance and hyper surveillance, and obviously state violence. So that, those are to me the, the two important points to make about this question of exceptionalism. And what I like here is saying something so basic, so basic, right? That healthcare is a human right for all people. And that people contains the Palestinian people that were contained in that conversation about health and human rights. And it's so critical to make those connections. It's so critical to make those connections to de-exceptionalize Palestine, not ignore its specificities, but to build those internationalist solidarities. I wonder if we could return to what you mentioned about the fragmentation and the sort of decentralization of uh, the provisioning of health services and health resources and pharmaceuticals and health care um, and the physical locales of care um, within this specific context. Can we talk about, as I, as I said in the beginning, you know, one of the arguments that you make is that a lot of what uh, the sort of idea of, of the intersection of the pandemic and Palestine is, is really an understanding of what the health system is like that preexists it and what the political economic factors are that um, really sort of drive specific social determinants. And one of those is, you know, this primarily sort of economic mode of strict deprivation of health resources um, to people living within Palestine. Can you talk a little bit for people who uh, have not been there, who do not know what healthcare is like in Palestine? Sure. I think to, to answer that question, it is really important to have kind of geographic orientation. So, you know, when I talk about Palestine, there's a, you know, geographic demarcation there. I want to say that first and foremost. When I talk about the Palestinians, I'm talking about the Palestinians that live inside the West Bank, that live inside Gaza, that live inside uh, 48 Palestine or what is known as Israel, and Palestinian refugees and Palestinian diaspora communities, many of whom are unable to return to their homeland, if, even if only to visit. Um, so that's one point. When I'm talking about Palestine, I'm talking here about what is happening inside Israel, what is happening in the West Bank, and what is happening in Gaza. And a lot of our metrics for Palestine and Palestinian health are coming through the West Bank and Gaza. And these are two essentially geographically disconnected areas of land that are governed somewhat separately, uh, one by a Ministry of Health in the West Bank and one by a Ministry of Health in Gaza. And 
Before we even got there, there was this accelerating program, especially after the second Intifada, the Al-Aqsa Intifada, around 2000, of accelerating development of illegal colonies or settlements inside the West Bank, transplanting and transferring Jewish people into those colonies on expropriated and stolen Palestinian land. And there's about 700,000 plus settlers now living in the West Bank. And they're living on settlements that are only accessible to them. And so you can imagine that there are these 200 plus settlements that are connected through settler-only, Jewish-only roads that are inaccessible to the Palestinians within the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So this is a fragmentation, one fragmentation layer, layer. And then you add on to that another layer, and that's the checkpoints. There could be 600, sometimes 700 checkpoints scattered throughout the West Bank. And these are checkpoints that are essentially um, barriers that are manned or womaned by IDF soldiers, and they could have a number of tactics, right? I need to see everyone's Palestinian ID card. I need to see, um, you know, the driver's registration, all that stuff. Um, one of their other, you know, mandates is to waste our time, to, to waste mm -hmm. people's time at checkpoints. If you thought American administrative burdens were bad. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I have yeah. to... I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I bought my documents because people don't believe it until they see it. Like, really? Like, you have to, aren't you a U.S. citizen, Dania? And I'm like, yeah, uh, I show up at the border. They'll throw that citizenship in my face. They'll show, sh throw that passport in my face. I'm a Palestinian ID card holder. And that's what dictates sort of the circuits and places that I can ambulate in within the West Bank. I can't go to Jerusalem without a permit. I can't go to Israel without a permit. I can't go to Gaza, period, without some kind of support from an NGO. And so if you think about these, um, the, the elaborate permit system, um, the elaborate and multi-layered ID card system, it's working at multiple scales, this fragmentation and deterritorialization of the Palestinian people. And so that, as you can imagine, you know, anyone that studies health, even if you had the best healthcare system, right? If people can't access it, mm -hmm. right? People can't access the hospital. If people can't access the health of the clinic or the pharmacy, or if people can't, their companion can't come from out of town and accompany them on the hospital visit. And this happens a lot in Gaza, where uh, people in Gaza who need advanced, for example, oncologic care are denied mm -hmm. permits to leave Gaza. And even when their permits, their medical permits are approved to leave Gaza to seek care, for example, in Jordan or the West Bank, um, their companions aren't approved to leave with them. And so they're traveling as a person who's suffering from a chronic condition that needs care. They're traveling alone. This is real. And, you know, last, a couple of weeks ago, um, when Israel was raining death on Gaza again, a girl was hit. Uh, her name was Layan Sha'ar. And she was hit in Gaza, and they had to bring her to a hospital in East Jerusalem. And this child, this 10-year-old or 11-year-old, she died alone. Of course, you know, our people were there for her, but her parents couldn't be there for her in East Jerusalem because of this permit system. And so it, it just, um, I think you, you really cannot understate, however normalized it's become, 
right? Even in conversations among Palestinians, it's been completely normalized, right? But just because it's been normalized, that doesn't mean it's okay or permissible or defensible in, in, in any way, shape, or form. And this hyperfragmentation affects access to healthcare resources first and foremost, right? So if you can't access right. care, however stellar that care is, you can't access it and your health outcomes uh, decline as a result. The other is the deliberate decimation of the healthcare system. And, and I mean physical structural attacks on the healthcare system. Um, there were stories that came out during COVID of um, Israel destroying testing sites, testing sites in, in the West Bank, especially in the Jordan Valley area, and the inability of people to access care vis-a-vis -vis testing. And I think the other bit is the complete control uh, Israel has over the Palestinian economy. Mm -hmm. And that trickles down on the capacity and ability of the Palestinian Ministry of Health to be able to provide care for the population. And so if you're stealing, right, 300 plus million dollars a year from the Palestinian people, and the World Bank likes to use this really um, horrific euphemism, they use the term fiscal leakage. Yeah. About like it's a little simple mistake, just a little leakage off the top. Right, exactly. Somebody left the faucet on too long. No, this is a deliberate theft of Palestinian taxes that is owed to the Palestinians, that is stolen from them, from the settler colonial state. And it's often stolen, not always, but it's often stolen as sort of punitive um, political pressure tactic, right? And so if, if the Ministry of Health or the Palestinian authorities um, are not able to fund the provision of care, then we see declining salaries for healthcare providers. The healthcare providers go on strike. They're not receiving their salaries. Um, we see extreme shortages in essential medicines, mm -hmm. upwards of like 30, 40, 50% shortages in essential medicines. And in Gaza, these are very pronounced because of the economic blockade and the inability of medical products to come into Gaza freely and to come out of Gaza freely. And so you have all of these inputs that are coming in that are informing the health of, of people. And these inputs are being informed by what I you know, call in, in the article, this fundamental cause, which is settler colonialism. And I, right. I didn't invent this term, fundamental right. cause. This, fun, this idea of fundamental causes um, was has been around for a couple of decades. And it's often been used to describe racism, for example, as a fundamental cause of, of poor health outcomes in the U.S. Um, and in some circles, capitalism and racial capitalism as a fundamental cause, meaning that it impacts every risk factor and that it's almost static over time how it impacts these risk factors, regardless of whether or not the conditions on the ground are improving. So regardless of whether or not we improve um, health services delivery, or we improve the capacity of health um, healthcare centers and hospitals to provide care, as long as these central determinants and as long as this fundamental cause remains unaddressed, then we continue to see poor health outcomes among Palestinians. And you see this across every health metric, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to go through the list of the health metrics, but, you know, the, the predominant one that's often offered is life expectancy. There's um, minimally a 10-year life expectancy difference between Palestinians um, and uh, Jewish Israelis. 
And of course, this is also just an average. There is a spectrum here. And it's obviously informed by class and geography um, and other sort of determinants. Right. And actually, um, maybe I'll just reread the quote that I actually read from your essay in the episode we did about social determinants of health with Abby Cardis that you referenced um, for people to just sort of have that uh, there for context. So you wrote, as an interdisciplinary field of inquiry, public health, unlike clinical medicine, is interested in the prevention of disease and the promotion of health in populations rather than in the treatment of disease in individuals. If we accept here the definition of health articulated by the World Health Organization as, quote, a state of complete mental, physical, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease, end quote, we understand that both individual and public health are determined predominantly by the structural and political context within which medical care is received. Defined in epidemiology as determinants, these include the environmental, economic, and social context within which people work, play, eat, struggle, and live. In other words, public health is political in as much as our social and economic contexts are political. Health, then, for Palestinians is inextricable from the ongoing Israeli settler colonial project of dispossession and erasure from the capitalist policies and practices that undergird the project in Palestine, in refugee camps, and in diaspora communities. This is not to say that settler colonialism is a social or political determinant of health. Rather, it is to say that settler colonialism precedes and is fundamental to all other determinants of health, be they clinical, economic, social, or political. And I just wanted to read that because um, I think that point is so important to sort of not collapse this as just another social determinant of health that that should be sort of seen as on equal footing. This is a, a sort of structural component that I don't think that we actually sort of have the sort of rhetorical armature to address within the current ways that we, you know, study health disparities um, globally. I think we like to think of things as being very easily quantifiable and countable. But I think even in the way that we count these health disparities, we're sort of counting to make the idea of settler colonialism go away, right? We're trying to create these kind of frameworks for almost other justifications and explanations for why, for example, you know, there is sort of worse uh, life expectancy or why, for example, so many people are disabled in Palestine or so many people are not able to uh, get the permits to access the care that they need. Um, you know, do you mind sort of just elaborating on like why it's very important to sort of think of this not collapsed, but expansively? Sure. I mean, I think first and foremost, and we sort of uh, talked about this earlier, but I think because it makes clear that there's a political project that's at stake, right? It makes clear that there are nodes by which we must act to improve health outcomes in this population. So it's, it's moving from the passive to that active um, solidarity. Um, and in my case, as a Palestinian, thinking about nodes of action that are required to, again, improve health outcomes. So that, that's one aspect of it that's critical because it allows for that possibility of making change. I think the, the other part of it that's important to consider is, you know, as an epidemiologist, I often start my intro to epidemiology course talking about the counterfactual, right? Mm -hmm. it's, 
when you want to establish the causal relationship between an exposure and an outcome, you want to, you know, have this kind of thought experiment where you imagine an alternate universe or you imagine going back in a time machine and having that person or having that population experience the same experiences, but now without that exposure. And so you craft your epi studies with that in mind, right? That you try to find a population that can be compared to your population of interest, that they're a population that's similar in every other way, except that they don't have that exposure. And I think about that in this context. How do we, do we imagine a counterfactual for the Palestinian people? How do we imagine a world where the Palestinian people didn't wake up on May 15, 1948, and Palestine was erased off the map? And what would that trajectory have been without this settler colonial project of erasure? And that's where I think, for me, I want to think more deeply about that question. And I want to think about what it would mean to live in a world as a Palestinian, whether it's in the diaspora or living in Palestine, without the specter of settler colonialism informing my everyday, informing when and how I can get to work, informing whether or not I even have work, informing whether or not I can go visit my family who's sick uh, in a hospital somewhere informing whether or not I can even go to Jerusalem or go to Haifa or go to my mom's town in 1948, Taibe, a town I've never been to that I need a permit to go to. I think to me, it's like, it's more than a thought experiment, right? To think of the counterfactual. Yeah. It's, it's the political project and it permeates every aspect of Palestinian life, that it truly becomes indiscernible from housing. It becomes indiscernible from land. And it becomes indiscernible from the everyday. And Palestinians inside and outside experience this in different ways. And one thing that I've been very um, vocal about is rejecting the, you know, the fragmentation of the discourse around Palestinians, that it's only the Palestinians that live in the West Bank and Gaza that have a right to have a voice. There are millions of Palestinian refugees that have been, been denied their right to return to their homeland, that have lived through three generations in refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And to ignore them in this conversation is so egregious and I think has been a sort of consequence of this hyper-individuation of the question of health in Palestine, that we start picking and choosing which Palestinians matter and which Palestinians don't. Now I'm sitting with that last thought, you know, the idea of who's sort of the worthy, who's coming from the worthy standpoint versus who's not. Um, I, well, I was just going to say that I think a, a Palestinian who rejects the narrative of inevitable death, uh, a Palestinian who rejects the narrative of the inevitability of dispossession and erasure, that's the most dangerous Palestinian. 
And those are often the Palestinians that are not centered in even our human rights discourse, even in our humanitarian discourse. The Palestinian stories that are centered are the stories that center the despair and the disability. And it's, you know, that conversation that was happening um, with the great March of Return in which Palestinians in Gaza bravely walked close to the border in the hundreds and the thousands and were being shot at with the point to uh, disable, with the point to debilitate. The sort of narratives that came out of that, the narrative of the Palestinian who is the victim and the Palestinian who is disabled and focusing not on the fact that these brave Palestinians were coming to the border to assert their right to return to their homes. The vast majority of Palestinians in Gaza are not originally from Gaza, they're refugees from inside 48. And it's almost like um, the, the only good Palestinian is the Palestinian that is a consumer and the Palestinian that can be consumed. And, uh, you know, my friend Sabrine Amro, we were talking about it the other day and we were talking specifically about the discourse and narratives around the Great March of Return and that Palestinian resistance and Palestinian acts of refusal are often decentered in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I see that as part of the dehumanization of Palestinians as, um, as a people that are not afforded that right to resist their erasure. And it's part of the discourse of selecting who is the good Palestinian, right? The good Palestinian who, again, is consumed and is consumable, is a consumer and is uh, consuming. And the, the bad Palestinian, which is the Palestinian that is rejecting the status quo actively right. in the everyday, vocally, um, through little acts of resistance that happen that are unrecorded and they're intentionally unrecorded by Palestinians. And I think the other bit of it is this, um, the idea of quantification for a population that is hyper surveilled is also an ethical question, right? Uh, we, we talk about in data sciences, right? Who, what do you know and what do you not know? And I, I'm always thinking about Palestinians uh, and other populations, right? Um, for example, undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Um, who don't want to be known, who don't want to be counted, and don't see being counted as part of their project. And um, that's also one of the dangers of the hyperquantification is that it assigns a lot of weight to the data that's known um, and uh, refuses to acknowledge the data that is will- willingly uh, undisclosed. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing that that I I, um, I keep thinking about while you're talking is also the sort of framework of resilience, right, and how it's very selectively applied. And and for example, in a lot of public health literature, sort of international NGO language, you'll see references to political resistance as quote unquote like pathologizes like risky behavior or mm-hmm. um 
you know, that the, the, the political resistance itself is framed as having uh, detrimental health consequences because of, for example, like Israel's policy of shooting to maim and disabling people who are engaging in protest. And that's kind of treated as if um, that that maiming is both like deserved and naturalized and part of it, but it also rejects the idea that political resistance is incredibly important and therapeutic to people who are um, oppressed, who are living in who under surveillance, who are occupied, who are sort of counted in this invasive way that rejects their humanity, but sort of prefigures their deaths in the same moment. Um, and, and I think it's really important uh, also to to just sort of think about how the political agency of Palestinians is also kind of stripped away, um, almost as if this is a kind of bad health health choice, like drinking soda or some bullshit, you know, the kind of personal responsibility framework of like, oh, well, you know, if you really wanted good health outcomes and you lived in Palestine, the thing to do would be not to protest, right? And to avoid that kind of debility, which is like inherent to the political act. And and these kinds of frameworks not only justify and perpetuate these things as okay, but they also explain the way to the outside world, like a kind of dynamic that is so far from the truth and and that frames sort of political resistance as not liberatory, but as itself, you know, dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, this is a very nuanced conversation among Palestinians too, right? What does it mean to resist? What does it look like to have a, a strategy for resistance or a strategy for liberation? And we have, um, before us, one of the very real consequences of fragmentation, which is the inability for there to be social cohesion and to be social, for there to be social mobilization. You cannot go to Gaza as a Palestinian if you don't live there and you don't have an ID card where your residence is Gaza. What does that mean for the ability of Palestinians inside the West Bank, inside 48, inside Gaza to, to have conversations, to strategize collectively, and to think about uh, a collective project of national liberation. And I, I'm not thinking about you know, the, the political parties here. I'm thinking just at the population level that this right. is one of the very real consequences of the fragmentation is, um, is the inability for there to be social uh, cohesion and political mobilizing that's happening between localities and between geographies, but also within geographies, within the West Bank, because of the difficulties of uh, of traveling across checkpoints and between checkpoints and between settlements, illegal settlements that are that pocket the, the West Bank. And so there definitely is, I think, an overriding energy that pathologizes Palestinian resistance. And this is also part and parcel of the larger conversation on the war on terror. And, you know, we're not going to get to it and certainly not my area of expertise, uh, but the conversations uh, around Palestine are also laden with this anti-Muslim um, animus and this, uh, forget the fact that there are uh, a sizable portion of the Palestinian population is also Christian, but forget that for a minute. The the anti-Muslimness, the anti-Palestinian racism that animates a lot of these spaces, including public health and health and human rights spaces is so palpable. And to your point, yes, uh, Palestinian resistance is pathologized, right? 
that if only they just stayed at home, right? They wouldn't mm-hmm. have been victims. They wouldn't have been victims of this uh, assault by one of the most powerful armies uh, in the world against a stateless people. And this is this kind of discourse has certainly become normalized um, to see Palestinians in that light. Right. So if we've talked about, you know, during the normal state of affairs within the sort of healthcare system within Palestine, a lot of that is mediated through actually being able to get out of these spaces that are heavily gatekept by Israel into um, the Israeli health system or into health facilities outside of Israel and Jordan, for example, like you were mentioning. And one of the things that was very common, as you were saying, before the pandemic was these kinds of restrictions on imports and exports of essential medicines. Basically, not only is there kind of an an attack on the physical health infrastructure within Palestine geographically, there are these other sort of restrictions layered on top of it. And part of what's sort of always existed is the idea that while Palestine is in this kind of perpetual freefall of health disparities, that Israel has this very superior and uh, sort of high-tech, precise healthcare system. And I think this has been a sort of major PR moment. The pandemic has been a major PR moment for the state of Israel in terms of how the data from its Pfizer vaccine trials was used globally to help uh, enthusiastically support efforts to quickly roll back restrictions in pursuit of a vaccine-only strategy. I mean, I think the role that Israel as this kind of global health leader has played in the pandemic has really become exaggerated outside of proportion. And I'd love if we could take a second to sort of talk about both the reputation of Israel as an international health technology and security power, but also, you know, how this regime of care and how control of pharmaceuticals in particular is really key to their colonial occupation. Yeah. um, Tell me about it. Right. (laughs) So, you know, when Eric Topol was cheerleading the vaccination efforts and celebrating the vaccination efforts and fixating on the speed of the vaccination efforts, and it, it was so widely taken up, right? And the, the pandemic was really, especially the early part, was really one of those moments where you sort of had to take a breather every once in a while. Because again, it was predicated on the complete erasure and abandonment of the Palestinian people. And a lot of the initial sort of advocacy discourse was Israel is an occupier. And according to the Fourth Geneva Conventions, They're required to provide vaccines to the population they occupy, and that population is the Palestinians. And I always had a problem with that framing as being the primary demand, is that Israel vaccinates the Palestinian people, when that demand was not coupled by the demand to end the settler colonial project, right? Mm -hmm. We aren't charity cases, We aren't begging to get our vaccine. You prevented us from getting our vaccine. You deliberately, not only did you not provide, if we are to follow the Fourth Geneva Convention stipulation, not only did you not provide vaccines, you got in the way of us transporting vaccines into Palestine. And it's, it was mind boggling, Beatrice, mind boggling to see otherwise thoughtful, engaged public health researchers and practitioners completely ignore that aspect of the story. And I do believe 
the arrangement was with Pfizer, the early rollout of the vaccine in Israel was under an agreement that they would also share data. Mm -hmm. And so there was also the ethical issue, right, of data sharing without consent. Um, And I I don't know the parameters of the agreement, but there was also this ethical issue around data sharing that folks didn't really talk about and focus on. I remember in particular, and a lot of Palestinians um, remember this, the Israeli health minister, he was asked in early 2021 uh, about the mandate for Israel to provide vaccines for Palestinians. And he said something that circulated quite widely among the Palestinians and in the diaspora. And he said, if Israel is responsible for vaccinating Palestinians, then the Palestinian health minister should take care of the dolphins in the Mediterranean. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm an animal rights person. I'm thinking, well, I care about the dolphins in the Mediterranean. I didn't know there were dolphins in the Mediterranean, but it was so sickening to see the Palestinians become an afterthought in this international discourse that valorized and lauded Israel, even even as it was attacking Gaza, even as it continued its targeted killings of Palestinian resistance fighters in the West Bank and Gaza, even as as it was engaging as an occupied power and continued engaging as an illegal occupier in the West Bank and Gaza, that there was this continued lionization of uh, the Israeli public health approach to vaccines. So I think the the latest numbers by the end of 2021, for example, nearly 70%, now it's much higher, it's around 80 or so percent of the Israeli population had two shots, were fully vaccinated, and then nearly half of the, uh, the population has had its third shot, and less than half of Palestinians by the end of 2021 had even their first shot. And so it was, it was acknowledging, it's, it is acknowledging um, the conditions of the settler colonial project and its architecture, including apartheid, that results in this inequity. Uh, but it's also that they were deliberately denying Palestinians access to the vaccine. That's really important to mention here. And I think, you know, when you think about the broader role of the Israeli pharmaceutical industry, you know, Tiva the largest generics manufacturer in the world is based in Israel. And Tiva, among other manufacturers in Israel, is a great beneficiary of the occupation. It's a great beneficiary of the economic blockade on Gaza. Uh, It's been able to take advantage and exploit the captive economy. Uh, The human rights organization Who Profits has a really great report. It's, It's a little dated now. It's about 10 years old, but it's called captive economy, and it's essentially on pharmaceuticals and the occupation. And I, for anyone interested, I recommend reading that report. Um, but Tiva in particular, as the largest global generics manufacturer, has been able to capitalize on the captive economy of the Palestinian people. They, they can circumvent marketing rules. They don't have to have a label in Arabic. They don't have to go through additional registration. They can have, um, you know, cargo ships come in and out without any legal administrative barriers and taxes that are levied against Palestinian uh, cargo ships. And this has made it so that the Palestinian economy is dependent on not only Israeli generics manufacturers, but also international manufacturers that can circumvent some of these uh, rules that are imposed on the Palestinian native 
pharmaceutical industry, um, but also the inability of near markets. So Jordan has a very healthy uh, generics industry, but the Israeli government has put stipulations on what types of pharmaceuticals can get into the West Bank and can get into Gaza. And those stipulations privilege the Israeli pharmaceutical industry. And then after that, privilege the multinationals. And uh, this is partly why there has been such a huge issue around drug shortages, because the Palestinian um, ministry is unable to afford these medications because they're at a price point that's not suitable for the economic conditions of the Palestinian people. Well, I think it's super important to sort of consider the position that Israel sort of set itself up for, which is that it's this total economic and political capture of all aspects of health that then in the international arena, it sort of has no responsibility for and it has no accountability for. And you talk about in in your piece why it's really important to challenge our sort of understanding is these things of being sort of natural or okay or justified or the way the world works and look at them for what they are as the, as the downstream result of essentially a, a kind of regime of knowledge production that seeks to decouple material effects and political effects and seeks to sort of de-emphasize the relationship that health, health has to the political and I think, you know, when you talk about the pharmaceutical situation, you know, it it makes me think of how so much in the U.S. the conversation around drug affordability is always about, well, we just need, you know, more generics. We need more generics in the market. And there's never a sort of discussion about price control or decommodifying patents or removing ownership of formulas or any of these sort of like broader structures that could or broader attacks to the sort of structure of how these things are commodified and then how that commodification is then used to dictate resource deprivation. And so I think just sort of talking through the ways that the situation with drugs in Palestine is not a mere issue of, oh, well, we just need to donate more of the drug, more drugs from the essential medicine list and everything will be fine. That's the kind of charity mindset that I think so many people approach health problems with, with like, oh, okay, here's this problem that's been quantified and calculated and we've got so-called proof of it. And now we're just going to sort of throw a product in that arena or sort of throw something to try and mitigate that. But it never actually focuses on trying to look at, um, you know, what is constructing health totally. And and we're sort of focused on these very small outcome-driven Um, things that can be easily measured. But ultimately, these interventions, a lot of times seem to just reinforce existing structures of power or reify some of these dynamics that, as we're saying, is sort of justified as natural, but are absolutely the downstream result of discrete political decisions about empire and about domination. Bingo! (laughs) You know, we... We, meaning I and many others who have a political practice that starts with the idea that health is not a commodity, we often say that public health and medical care in the U.S. is sort of whack-a-mole, right? It's a whack-a-mole strategy. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to give people housing vouchers. 
Um, we're going to give people, you know, six months of universal basic income, but God forbid we address the root causes, right? God forbid we address the root causes. God forbid we talk about the root causes, right? That's another issue is even talking and articulating um, the root causes as a sort of third rail in, for example, academia. Um, but you, you talk a bit about this donating paradigm, this charity medical industrial complex paradigm. And what's so important to talk about here, especially in this context, is that a lot of NGOs and a lot of international governments were actually donating to Gaza, mm-hmm. actually donating uh, essential supplies, essential medicines. And the problem is, one, sometimes they wouldn't get in. But when they would get in, they would be almost near expiration date. And what is Gaza supposed to do with these expired tons of pharmaceutical products? Its wastewater systems decimated. Its sewage systems decimated. Its uh, access to ports is non-existent. And so... Um, there's also a cost, right? The, you, the Nothing is free. Nothing is free. Mm-hmm. We're never getting anything for free. And this is, you know, in the, in, the, in the medical care space, we talk about it in terms of antibiotics, for example, right? Oh, just give them an antibiotic. But there's a cost to that, right? We know that there's increased antibiotic resistance. And then future care may be foreclosed if uh, a patient is no longer... Um, responding to a particular antibiotic because it's been overused. And so it's almost like that same thinking here. Nothing is for free in this context, including pharmaceutical products, because there's a material cost to housing those pharmaceuticals. And when they're arriving and they're near expiration date, and they're not going to be used ultimately in the population, or they're inappropriate for the population, or inappropriate for the healthcare needs of the population, then they now have added to the burden of the Palestinian Ministry of Health. And so these are also dynamics that are happening um, behind, behind the scenes when it comes to access to pharmaceuticals. And this is what I say is sort of like that whack-a-mole strategy that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just give them a voucher, give them a drug rebate coupon um, that we see in the U.S., but we don't talk about that bigger picture, which is that hyper-commodification of health and of people being unable to access basic health services in, in not a one-off way, but in a continuous way that is critical for their well-being. And the, that, that's the same dynamic is happening in Palestine. It's happening at different scales, perhaps, um, and within different structures, um, but it's happening there. And the pharmaceutical industry has benefited. The other industries within Israel in particular um, have benefited from this uh, captive economy. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to read uh, Sukhi Samur's piece in that special edition, uh, The Necroeconomy of Palestinian Labor in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, he writes in it, if, if I can. Oh, please. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He writes, this, and, and Subhi is a health economist uh, based in Palestine. He writes, I quote, the specificity of Palestinian labor center on, centers around it having to survive under two over-determining logics that often converge in practice, but do so conjecturally rather than structurally. 
the logic of settler colonial elimination and that of capital. That is to say, while Palestinian workers are exploited by settler colonial capital, this has historically not been Zionism's original or ideal arrangement. Rather, in its ideal scenario, there would be no Palestinian left to be exploited. After 1967, its policies of de-development resulted in hollowing out local productive capacity of the economy by preventing it from accessing and utilizing critical inputs needed to promote internal growth, thus rendering local job creation structurally insufficient to meet demand of a growing population. Since the beginning of the century, it has bifurcated Palestinian labor by continuing to subject West Bank labor to conventional forms of colonial exploitation. Meanwhile, Palestinians in Gaza, once Israel's main reservoir for cheap labor, have been rendered profitable, not through their labor force, but instead through it becoming a testing ground for Israel's high-tech weapons and surveillance industry. While any analyses of the Palestinian labor question need to be attentive to its specificity, they need not foreclose situating it within a universal perspective one that locates global forces operating in Palestine and one that understands Palestine as an index of historical processes unfolding on the global scale, such as practices of surveillance and population control, counterinsurgency, and international aid, end quote. Um, and what I think is so important about what Subhi is saying here is this convergence of these hyper-determining, over-determining paradigms of capitalism, settler colonialism that kind of collide in the context of Palestine and that have reverberations globally. And it is in the surveillance industry, it's in the captive economy, it's in the decimation of the Palestinian economy, affording uh, Israel access to a cheaper labor force. Palestinians are forced to work in, in Israel for uh, lower wages, but also they're hyper-taxed and hyper-exploited. And um, I'm not speaking in hyperbole. If, if you want to hear it from the horse's mouth, you can read Haaretz and read about the um, taxes that are levied against Palestinian laborers inside, uh, that work inside Israel, that are forced to work inside Israel as a matter of survival. Um, and so I think seeing those connections and unraveling those connections both in Palestine but uh, internationally are so critical for building a political project of solidarity that is premised on liberation and premised on the idea that health among other universal basic rights is not a commodity and we should not normalize health as a commodity. Right. And I think one one sort of point that you make, and it's actually almost a it's a question that you ask your reader in in your essay, is um, you said, what does it mean to invoke the right to health without accounting for conditions of sustained, persistent, overwhelming, and abiding terror and violence? And I think that that's really the sort of fundamental takeaway: is we cannot we cannot continue to approach a public health lens and a lens of health, assuming that we can do it without tackling the political structures like settler colonialism and like these extractive economic regimes of, you know, global scale, as we've been saying. Um, there is no right to health for Palestine until Palestine has some kind of autonomy. Like that's not 
possible. And we can't continue to try and sort of study these small atomized pieces as if to tweak around the edges. The only way towards, you know, health as a human right is towards liberation. Yeah. And I think the response to that is often, you know, let's start small. Um, you know, I don't want to overwhelm people with the prospect of taking on settler colonialism. That's too vast of an undertaking. I don't want to overwhelm people, right, um, with the prospect or the thought of taking on racism or taking on racial capitalism. And my response to that is I also don't want to lie to people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to engage in a project that elides and ignores and abandons people that are asking for freedom and asking for liberation. And especially when, you know, in the context of, of health, for example, we think about people who become marginalized and who become abandoned and disposable in the context, for example, of COVID-19 in the U.S. And you talk so much about this on your podcast. Um, I'm going to start there. I'm going to start with those who will be most hurt by these policies that ignore the truth of the matter. And it might be hard for some folks to swallow, and that's fine, right? But we'll walk on this journey together. Mm -hmm. Walk on this journey together to imagine a better world. I refuse to give in to this, what is often called sort of the pragmatic approach to healthcare activism. And that doesn't mean I believe that little changes are not important. I do believe little changes are important. Um, but those little changes also have to be happening with the backdrop of the conversation very clear that what is fundamentally at stake is the survival of people. And what is fundamentally, fundamentally at stake for me, um, you know, as a Palestinian and as a Palestinian public health researcher, but also just as a public health researcher and advocate and as a pharmacist, as an epidemiologist, is to help make the world incrementally a better place for all people to live. And that tension is, is always there. And um, that's what's so important about solidarity, right? Is, mm -hmm. you know, I experienced gaslighting from sort of the disciplinary sense and the institution sense seeing Palestinians completely ignored in this conversation. Um, and if they're actually talked about, they're demonized and dehumanized and othered. And then I also just experiencing it, experience it personally as a Palestinian, as we talked about when the whole conversation around COVID-19 access began to circulate. Lo and behold, sort of the model nation was an ethno state that was predicated on the erasure of my people. And what's so critical for me is to have these conversations, right? Like the one we're having today, the one that I have with my comrades, not all of whom are in public health. Some are in other disciplines, some are, don't work in the public health space at all, but it's a political praxis, right? And we make mistakes along the way but I think walking hand in hand with people makes the journey worthwhile. Absolutely. And I have to say, I just really appreciate your work. Um, 
it's personally been really important to me and inspiring in terms of guiding me to just remember what it is that I'm fighting for at the end of the day, which is ultimately not just that we deserve to survive, right, Um, by the sort of bare minimum standards, but that, you know, health is not a commodity. Health belongs to us and we have a, a right to assert it collectively. And the only way to do that is to, mm-hmm. I think, realize that collectively, when we stand in solidarity, we have tremendous power over these individualized framings, which help to, if anything, just reify these sort of existing extractive structures of power. And um, I think it's it's so important to just sort of take a moment and hold a mirror up and say, you know, when I'm when I'm counting, what am I saying? What does my counting mean? What does this sort of argument that I'm making mean once it hits the world? And how does it contribute to either building or dismantling these frameworks, which ultimately are you know, they may be helping us survive, as you're saying, incremental change is also important, but, you know, not at the expense of preventing us from thriving. So important. That's so well. Mm-hmm. I just really wanted to thank you for coming on today and uh, sharing so much of your time and and taking the time to talk to me. I mean, as I told you, I've been really excited to have this conversation for a long time. It's long overdue. Um Really appreciate it. Was there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you wanted to talk about? Or are there any sort of final points or takeaways that you wanted um, to make? So I think it would be nice to wrap up with this um, statement that I was so moved by uh, from the Palestine New Federation of Trade Unions, which was issued uh, May 1st, 2020. And they talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of the intersections of solidarities across the world and say, we Palestinians express our solidarity with our sisters and brothers all over the globe in fighting the pandemic and the capitalist corporations which rake in profits on the backs of workers. Crises are moments of change. And today we reiterate our call for more collective action to intensify the movements that eventually will overthrow the racist, colonial, capitalist, patriarchal, and neoliberal world order that hinges on the exploitation and subjugation of workers. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed that both the capitalist and colonialist enterprises speak the same language of discrimination, exploitation, and racism by demarcating and differentiating, quote, the lives that matter from those that don't matter more than ever before. Many governments in the so-called developed world are now revealing the full scale of their contempt for internationalist values and principles of human rights as they respond to the pandemic with hectic, protectionist, and racist practices, leaving the rest of the world without support to mitigate the pandemic. Even towards their own citizens, Western governments adopted measures to contain and mitigate the pandemic under the motto of, quote, the survival of the fittest. On the day of remembrance of those who wanted to force the capitalist enterprises to respect their humanity through strikes and protests, we mourn all those colonized and the many old and disenfranchised people and workers who are among those not fit enough to survive and combat the pandemic, close quote. Well, that is without a doubt 
the perfect place to leave it for today. Thank you so much again, Danya, for coming on. This has been absolutely an honor. You can follow Dr. Cotto on Twitter at D-A-N-Y-A-Q-A-T-O. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Come back.